All right, it is good to see everybody out today, and for those who are joining us online, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you there, and today the message may relate a little more to you uh, if you are at home, because uh, we're going to be talking about loneliness a little bit and how we can find joy in that. Uh, so this is a new series we're starting today on the book of uh, Philippians. It's called Joy to the World, and uh, when we titled it that, I thought, you know, that sounds like Christmas, and it's a little early, granted, for us to talk about Christmas, but... I think all of us are probably ready for some good news, right? Uh, we're about ready to, let's hit Christmas about July, you know, probably what we should have done there. Uh, but there's a lot of things in our world that have, uh, have changed this year, right? Uh, we've been dealing with this virus. The election has come up. Thank goodness the election has passed. It was a joy for some. It was a sadness for others, right? But we can find joy in knowing that the person that God places there is the one that God wanted to win there. And all in all, it's been a tough year. I mean, it really has for, for a lot of us. The virus has canceled a lot of things that we found joy in. I don't know about you, but a lot of things that I really enjoy doing, we haven't been able to do fully this year, maybe in some ways, but not in every way. And I was telling somebody this morning, I find joy on Sunday morning just walking around talking to people. And I said, you know, it almost in some ways feels a little bit normal, starting we might be sensing some of that a little bit. Uh, but we know it's not all over as well. But throughout this year, we've experienced some things that, we, uh, that were canceled that we might like to do. Maybe some traveling, maybe some, you know, some get-togethers. Uh, here at the church, we're already and still uh, continuing to experience things being canceled. Uh, we're not having our Thanksgiving meal this year. Uh, we have a hard time doing that. Uh, you might imagine doing that in a socially distanced way. Uh, our breakfast with Santa is something we're not going to be able to do this year just because we can't figure out how to do that as well. We, we do have some things to replace that. But there's family gatherings that are probably not going to happen. There are some Christmas parties, Christmas plans, some travel that maybe you won't be able to do. And, you know, those things are going to take away our joy. But I, what I've also noticed is that during the holidays, there also can be kind of a sense of melancholy for some people. Not everybody finds a lot of joy in the holidays. I was reading some statistics that said, that 88% of people feel stressed during the, this time of year, 88% on a normal year. I think this year is probably going to bump that up uh, a, a couple of percentage points at least. I was also reading that 56% uh, of people bite their lip with family during this time of year. You don't say what you're thinking, probably which is a good idea, right? Uh, the top three topics to avoid with family are politics, personal matters, and religion. I was reading that the average couple during this time, this season of the year, has seven arguments. I'm thinking, that's kind of low to me, you know? Seems to me like seven's kind of low. But the, the top five things people argue about is where to go, money, family, cleaning, and cooking. That's what people argue about this time of year. It sounds about right. Oh, and about 85% of people admit that they overeat this time of year. You know, all those things together, there's not a lot of joy that's going on in our world today. And that's kind of ironic when you think about it because joy, Christmas is supposed to be the time of joy. All the Christmas songs we're going to start hearing, all the talk about joy, joy to the world, oh come all you faithful, joy, joy, joy. But you know there's not much joy or good news it seems in our world today. But what I want you to know is that there really ought to be. There really ought to be. In Luke chapter 2, the angels came and they appeared to the shepherds and they said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born. The reality is that Jesus brings joy into our world, and Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. 
And I got to admit it, guys, sometimes I'm not the most joyful person. I, I, I have to go through those times. I want to have more joy in my life, so I'm kind of excited about this study. I hope I discover some things. I think I'm already trying to figure some things out here. There's not a lot of joy that people find in our world today, but you know what? You can find joy in Jesus. And even though the title of this series seems to direct us to Christmas, it's not really about Christmas. We're going to focus on a book of the Bible, the book of Philippians, which is the book of joy. That is the theme throughout the book of Philippians. It's an awesome book of the Bible uh, that I want to encourage you to, to kind of think about and read during this time of year. And it's kind of interesting, the, the history of this book. This book was written to the church in Philippi, which was a city in that day, uh, which... Uh, was uh, we read about in Acts chapter 16. So if you want to know kind of where the church began in Philippi, it gives us a pretty good picture. We don't always get this kind of information about the churches there, but uh, it was a, a, in Acts 16, you read about that. Uh, Philippi is in modern-day Greece, if you want to kind of get an idea of where it is, and we'll talk about it in just a second. But, but Philippi was a city that had been founded as a colony of retired Roman soldiers, and most of them were Gentiles. And so it kind of gives us an idea that Paul was writing, writing kind of specifically to people that didn't have the Jewish history that a lot of the other uh, churches might have had. And uh, they didn't know who Jesus was. And so as we look at this, we're going to kind of get a picture of how we view Jesus and how Jesus should bring joy into our world. Now, Acts chapter 16 gives us the account of Paul arriving in Philippi. When, he, when Paul would get to a city, he normally would go to the synagogue where the Jewish people would meet. Those were religious people to start with. It was a good place to start. He would meet with the Jews. He would see if they were responsive. He would see if they had any interest in hearing about Jesus. And then oftentimes he would go to other people. But in Philippi, there was no church there. So Paul sought out the people that might be interested in hearing about Jesus. And so uh, we kind of read about two major events in that city. Uh, one of them, the first was which, that Paul met with a businesswoman named Lydia. She sold purple clothing, kind of unusual, kind of luxurious stuff in that day. And um, she was hosting a Bible study uh, at a prayer meeting down by the river. And he joined with them, and from that, it kind of formed a nucleus of a church that would be planted in the city there. The second event you might be aware of in uh, Acts 16 was that Paul and his team, probably composed of Luke and Timothy and probably some others, they got in trouble because they healed a young girl who was following them around. Uh, she was calling out to them and, uh, and knew who they were, recognized them, but this girl was possessed by a spirit who gave her the ability to tell fortunes. And so she was following them around, and, uh, and she had made a living for her masters doing this, when they finally, you know, realized what was going on, they turned around, they healed her, and you can imagine the master of this girl, masters were not very happy because no longer could she tell fortune, so they, you know, brought the authorities against them, ended up getting the whole group arrested and put in jail overnight. But during the night, again, this is Acts chapter 6, during the night, God sent an earthquake that releases, that straddles the prison, uh, releases all the prisoners' bonds, and they're about to escape when Paul steps in, and he brings peace, and the jailer then brings Paul and his group into his home, and he tells them about Jesus, and the jailer and all of his family are baptized. So that's kind of the, what we get in Acts chapter 16 about the church there in Philippi. Now, I have a special interest in this city because I was blessed four years ago to go to Philippi on a mission trip. 
not specifically there, but we went to Bulgaria. This is a ministry that we support through our church. And so I was able to go there with one of our, one of our elders. And uh, while we were there, he said, hey, you want to go to Philippi? Now, I'm not like Tony. I've never been to Israel because I can't tell you the stories and walked where Jesus walked, but I can say I walked where Paul walked because we were in Philippi, a few hours north, uh, south of Bulgaria. We drove down there one day, and uh, we drove through the city. And unlike a lot of the ancient cities, Philippi has never been rebuilt. Now, Thessalonica, which is another interesting city, is just north of of Philippi, but there are no ruins there because they just kept building on top of the ruins. So there's just a modern city there, and it's pretty modern. Very, very few ruins there. But Philippi was abandoned in the early 7th century. There were several earthquakes that came by, and uh, there was a lot of violence in that area. So they finally just walked away from the town of Philippi. So it's kind of odd. You're driving in the countryside, and and you look out, and there's there's just a desolate you know, abandoned city there, uh, which are the ruins which you kind of would imagine. So I brought some pictures, not a bunch, only four, but I'm going to show you this. I thought it was really interesting. The first picture we got up here, I believe, is this is the river which they, uh, where it's Lydia was uh, praying beside, which is kind of interesting. And they've kind of built it up. There's even a shrine there, but I didn't think we were interested in the shrine. But there's the river, supposedly the spot where Paul and Lydia prayed with the believers in, uh, in, in Philippi. So that's kind of cool. The second picture that I think we've got here is the jail. Uh, we, we don't think about it being a big prison. It was a house. It was a, uh, an old house, broken down ruins, uh, where Paul and Silas were in prison and where God rattled the prison, literally a room or two, and set them free. So I thought that was interesting. And then the next couple pictures are just views of the ruins there. So there's some pretty significant ruins. This is the amphitheater, a sizable uh, area, and then the other pictures just kind of overviewing a lot of the ruins there. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Having been there, you kind of get a little greater feel for, for what was going on there. And standing in that amphitheater, you know, imagining that Paul probably stood there at one point was a pretty neat, pretty neat feeling. So anyway, I, I thought I wanted to share that a little bit of, about that with you. The curator of the museum said that everything around you was an archaeological dig. It, you just imagine being in, in the middle of that area where everything, everywhere you dug, you probably would end up uh, hitting a structure or a foundation of some sort. Here's the other interesting thing about that. In 42 BC, there was a major battle right outside of Philippi where Brutus and Cassius, who were the assassins of Caesar, you probably read about them in history, right? They were defeated and killed by Anthony and Octavian. Uh, they were killed out there, and so their, their, their uh, armies were wiped out uh, just outside the town. And the curator said that people are bringing in swords and spears and all these things uh, all the time. Some of them are just, you know, just little pieces of metal, of course. But I just thought that was interesting, the history of this city. And you can kind of see history come back to life again. Anyway, the church there at Philippi, was the first Christian church planted in Europe. And so Paul had a special love for them. If you look back in Acts um, uh, 16 or 15 or 16, uh, Paul knew that he had been called to Macedonia. Remember the Macedonian call that, that God said, I, I want you to go to Macedonia. Well, Macedonia is where Philippi was and where Greece is today. So God called Paul to go there and plant this church there in Europe. And so he had a special love for the church. 
Now, if you look at the book, there's no real condemnation. Some of the books, Paul just calls them out, and he's just really rough in some ways. But in the book of Philippi, there's not really any criticism. There's only warm words of encouragement and love that he's sharing with them. And probably the reason is that the church was strong there. They were strong believers, even though they were probably, again, military families. Uh, the church was strong and vibrant. And Paul is giving them this letter, and it's packed with the theme of joy. And you know what? What I love about that is it's just irrelevant to us today as it was back then. Because we need to hear some joy. And they may have been a strong church, but maybe not a real joyful church. Maybe not so joyful. So I want to encourage you to read this book at some point. It's four chapters, 104 verses. You could probably read that in one setting. You could break it down, whatever you want to do it. Uh, But please read the book. It would be good for you personally to read through that. And Paul tells us that joy is a choice. And that joy comes because that we know Jesus Christ. Now, here's a really odd thing about this whole idea of writing in joy is that Paul's talking about joy, but Paul is in prison while he's doing it. Most scholars believe that this letter was written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome and that the book was written about 60 A.D., 60 A.D. So Paul is writing about joy while he's sitting in a place that people normally are not very happy about. Who can be joyful when you're sitting in jail? And yet Paul was doing that. He knew that the people back in Philippi didn't have the kind of joy that they needed, and so he encouraged them in spite of his own situations. And he tells them how to have joy in spite of circumstances. And I, that's why I wanted to share this book. I think this is a great time to talk about joy since it's in such limited supply in our world today, and we can have so many things to complain about and be critical of, and yet we can have joy. Because Paul is writing about joy. He is not discouraged. He is not down even though he's in jail. Now, what I think we do see here is that Paul is a little bit lonely. He's a little lonely, and that would be natural, right? In time, in fact, in some of his letters, he talks about his prison epistles. He talks about missing people, and he talks about how he's reflective of the relationships that he has there. That's why I thought this might be relevant to us, because sometimes in our socially distanced world today and in our isolation at home, it's easy to get lonely, right? It's easy to get lonely. And loneliness can make us reflective, and it should make us thankful for the people that are in our lives. So Paul opens the book here by addressing the believers that are at Philippi, people that he had relationships with. So let's jump in the first few verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for you every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So Paul kind of identifies himself. You know, this letter was sent to them, and they would read this in the assembly. They would pass this letter around to other churches as well, but it was written specifically to the Philippians church. And so Paul identifies himself and Timothy, his uh, um, apprentice ministry, if you would, and he said, we are servants, first of all, of Christ Jesus Christ, and then also of one another. Jesus was the first one to explain, if you recall, the idea of being a servant leader. Here's what he said in Matthew chapter 20. Whoever wants to become your great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Now, here we got Paul, who was an international missionary. I mean, think about this for a second. He was an international missionary. He was an evangelist. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had seen the, the risen Lord. So he was a pretty big deal in that day, but he just saw himself as a servant of Jesus. And he saw himself as a servant of the people of Philippi because he had, had been their founder of the church, and he had also been the, the minister of the church there. And so he was just a servant. He did not put himself on any type of pedestal at all. And you know what that teaches us is that serving is where we start. Serving is where we start in our relationship with Christ. If you want to be like Jesus, be a servant. Be a servant. Don't view yourself as someone to be served. That's what Jesus taught us. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve others. That's very important. If you want to start somewhere, start with service. If you want to meet some people and connect with other believers, start serving. You know, I, I have some of the greatest uh, memories I have of being with other Christians is when we did things together and we served other people. Some of the coolest things that I see are when our service teams are just together. I, I love seeing out on Sunday morning, even before anybody gets here, that our first impressions team, they're outside, they're talking, they're laughing. Sometimes we got to say, hey, stop talking to each other and talk to other people, you know, because they love each other so much, you know. And I go back in the back and I see our, our, our student or our children volunteer workers, they have a whole room to themselves where they go in there and they just enjoy each other and they connect and build relationships there. Sometimes our groups form around those type of connections and relationship. So serve, if you want to meet people and connect with people, learn how to serve. Paul saw this, this brotherhood of believers as being extremely important and spending time together was very important. And he said, you know what? I'm just a servant, but I'm a brother to you guys. I'm a friend. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, how much time did Paul really spend at Philippi? We don't know. We, we know that during a period of 10 years, he stopped there at least three different times to visit with them, probably some extended time with them. We're not sure. But he knew that the time together was important, the time of worship and sharing together. But one thing we know is that there was a special bond between Paul and the church there because their love for each other was very strong. They were praying for Paul. He was praying for them. We'll see in a few moments. And they were also financial supporters of Paul because at one point he calls them partners in Christ. And that's what we are whenever we work together and we give together. We support the kingdom, the purpose, the mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, for we are co-workers in God's service. So when you look around, the people you serve with, the people that you worship with, we are co-workers. We're working not only for God, but with one another. And Paul really embraces that idea of, of oneness and of being a part of the body of Christ. In fact, Paul used another term for them in verse 1. He calls them God's holy people. God's holy people. Most other versions beside the New International uses the word saints. He calls them saints. Now, we have this idea. We think about saints. We think about people who have, you know, lived and died a long time ago, and they've been gone through a process of becoming a saint. But when the Bible talks about saints, the Bible talks about people like you and I. And you probably don't think of yourself as a saint. In fact, sometimes you probably don't act like a saint either as well, you know. But that doesn't mean that you're perfect. Being a saint means not that you're perfect, but that you have been forgiven of your sins, you have been made holy by the blood of Christ, and that you are in the process of being sanctified. That's where the word saint comes from. You are being sanctified or being made holy. So I'm going to dub all of you as saints 
all right, because you are, not by my power, but you are a saint. And I think what, to me, more than anything, this gives me the challenge, if I'm a saint, I ought to start living like it. I'll start living like it, thinking like it, acting like a saint, if that's what I have been called to be. So that's a big challenge there. Anyway, in verse 6, he goes on to say, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what that means is that we're all in process. So if you're not really a saint yet, if you're not living like a saint, it's okay. Don't give up. Just keep on trying. But you are in process. You are being made holy. And God, who began the good work in you, will carry that work on until completion, until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. We're never going to be perfect until we're with Christ, but hopefully we're in a process of being made holy. And in the middle of that, we need to persevere and let Christ continue his good work in us. And if he's not developing and growing you and continuing good work, then maybe there's a breakdown in your sainthood development, all right? Anyway, let's pick it up. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, Paul says, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So once again, Paul is emphasizing their connection. They are in his heart. They are sharing in God's grace with him. He is longing for them with the affection that he has and the love of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing that jumped out with me, and I don't want to dissect every word. We don't have time for that. But here's what jumped out with me. Paul says, I'm praying for you. I am praying for you. And I want you to see what he's praying for them about. He's praying that their love would grow, that their spiritual depth would grow, and that their discernment would increase. And when I read through that, I thought, you know what? My prayers are pretty shallow. Because when I pray for you, and I pray for you, if you ask me to, or if I, you come to my mind, I, I pray for you, but you know what? My prayers are not like that. I'm like, please be with them and keep them safe and bless them and meet their needs and make them well or whatever the, the pressing need may be. And I think we all do this. I'm, I hope it's not just me. But I'm not sure I pray for people with this kind of depth. And maybe we ought to. Maybe it's because we're in the full flow of life and those are seemingly the most important things to us. And we don't think about the really important things about people's love, that, that people's love should grow. That their spiritual depth would increase. Their, their discernment would multiply. And if we prayed for people like that, maybe... God would answer our prayers better. We can see people being made well and being cared for. Maybe it's not what we're praying for that we need to be thinking about. And maybe Paul sensed that because he wasn't in the middle of life like all of us are. Instead, Paul was sidelined in a Roman prison, and he had a lot of time to pray and think about the people that he loved and cared for and the people that he was investing in, and he had the best things to pray, not just good things. I'm not saying anything wrong with the way we pray about either one another, but he was praying about the best things, the most important things, the things that would remain. 
And you know what? I got a feeling that if you and I were in jail and that his conditions, and by the way, these were not posh luxury conditions he was in. You saw the jail up here in Philippi, right? It was falling in. Uh, I'm sure that the, one, the Roman jail was a little bit better, but it was not comfortable. Sometime in jail, they didn't even feed you. You had people on the outside might bring you food, but they didn't feed you. Jail was really punishment, and you, you know, slept on a rock probably, and you didn't have a lot of, a lot of luxuries there. And I got a feeling that if you and I were in jail, we would not be thinking and praying for everybody else. We'd probably be thinking and praying about ourselves. And being miserable and certainly not joyful, which Paul is in this letter. But here's the amazing thing in all these circumstances, Paul is not miserable. He had learned to be content in all situations. There's a big key in that, right? In fact, in other places, he talks about everything he's been through shipwrecked, he's been beaten, stoned, left for dead, mocked, made fun of, abandoned, rejected by everybody else. But he said, In that, I have learned to be content in all situations. I haven't learned that yet, obviously. I haven't learned that. But here's what he says in Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole police palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters here have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So here's what Paul says, I'm in jail, but you know what? I'm happy to be here because something cool has happened because I'm here. Because he was sold out to Christ as his complete focus, he didn't have a lot of distraction in his life. He could focus on where he was and what was going on. He had no wife, he had no children, he had no career, he had no hobbies, no other interest. And he said, you know what, by the way, it would be better off if we were all the same way, if we were just totally committed to Christ. And because he didn't have all those distractions in life, he was able to really focus on Jesus. Maybe you say, well, I can't identify with that because I've got obligations, I've got debts, I've got family to care for, I've got this job, I've got all these things in my life. And you know what, we are who we are and where we are, right? But I think it makes it more difficult for us today. And the greater challenge is to put Christ in his rightful place, which is first, while we're dealing with everything else in life. That's why I think Paul's like, he's saying, I got it made. I don't have all that other stuff to worry about. I don't have all those distractions in life. All I got to do is focus on where I am and what God has done for me and, and how to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, with our blessings, we have a more difficult job. We have a hard way to go, and we have so many distractions in our life. And here's the amazing thing. We, we, none of us want to give those things up because we think our joy comes from those things, but it doesn't. We're not joyful with all those things. Paul, Paul has none of them, and he's joyful. It's kind of a little bit crazy, right? <laughs> Makes us wonder how we're living life. But what Paul is saying is that God knows what he's doing because putting him there in jail has been a blessing. And it's opened up a whole new mission field to him. He said, everybody here knows that I'm in chains for Christ. So I don't have to tell them why I'm in jail. I don't have to explain what I did. They know I didn't do anything, that I'm here because of my faith in Jesus. He'd done nothing wrong. That was evident. He was only there because he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus. And even in jail, he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus. He said the whole palace guard is now being told about Jesus. The whole palace guard was about, some say, 9,000 men. You would compare them to the SEAL, SEAL Team 6, probably 
today. These were tough guys. Can you imagine these tough guys sitting beside the Apostle Paul and being chained with him and him telling them about Jesus every day? They're like, oh, no, who's going to talk to, who's going to sit with Paul today? You know, we, we don't want to hear all that over and over again. But you know what? It was pretty cool. And, and Paul was telling the Philippian church there, who mostly were composed of retired Roman soldiers, I've been talking to your buddies. I've been talking to your comrade, your brothers in arms about Jesus. And they were going, yes. They were so excited to hear that their brothers in arms were being saved. And Paul said, not only that, but also everybody else, because I'm boldly proclaiming Christ, other believers are encouraged to do the same, and they're fearlessly sharing Jesus as well. He was on the inside. They were on the outside. Probably Luke and Timothy. We're not sure they were in there with him his team, and they were on the outside. They were teaming up, talking to families, sharing Jesus, you know, around, around the, the city. You know, Paul had caused these problems because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus, and, and they just really made the problem worse. And now everybody else was as well. You know, what I've found is that when we have boldness in our lives, God begins to move, and he stirs up the lives of other people as well. Let me share some lessons with you before our time's over. First of all, there's a big difference between isolation and, and solitude. We talk about loneliness, and we can view it one of two ways, isolated or being alone, solitude. Isolation is where the devil can work on us. When you're alone and you don't focus on Jesus, you get isolated from people, and Satan has a way of working in your heart, your mind, and discouraging you. He can tear you up on the inside. But solitude, on the other hand, is where God can work. And both of those places can make us lonely. We're lonely because we're alone, but we decide how we're going to respond to that. Let me tell you a story I heard the other day. It's an amazing story about a pastor named Pastor Chen, who was a pastor in China who was thrown into jail for preaching Jesus. And he said that he was treated worse than all the other criminals because he was a believer. And the, the other criminals bullied him. He was beaten and tortured by the guards. Uh, and, uh, but but uh, even though it was a miserable existence, he was most concerned about the fact that he did not have any time with God. There, was, there were 60,000 men in this prison, and there was noise all the time. Every, there was no time, no quiet time with God. And he worried about connecting with God, and he worried about praying for the church that he had left behind. And so for 12 years, he prayed for solitude, just some time to be away from the noise and being with God. And finally, after 12 years, one day a guard came in and with a smirk said, I've got a new assignment for you. And he tucked him downstairs to the basement of the prison where the cesspool was, where all the waste from 60,000 prisoners, where it all flowed to a huge in-ground tank in the basement. And he said it was unbelievable, the smell and the filth. He could imagine, not imagine how someone could deal with that. But the guard says, now your job is to climb in the cesspool and walk up to your armpits in that sewage every day. Keep it circulating because the waste has to be um, dissolved in there. And it has to be circulated. And so Pastor Chen was assigned to walk around several hours a day in that waste. He could not imagine what it would be like. But every day he went down being forced to do so. And then one day he realized that God had given him what he prayed for. That God had given him the solitude when he was alone with God. And of course he, ad he adapted to the smell. We can imagine, we can't imagine how, but, but eventually he did. 
And he said one day when he realized that, he began to sing, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear calling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And as he walked in the cesspool, day after day, he communed with God. For six years, he had that task. He walked the cesspool. He spent time with God, and he prayed for the church that he had left behind. He prayed, I believe, like Paul, that their love would grow, that their spiritual depth would grow, and their discernment would increase. And finally, after 18 years, serving 18 years in prison, he was released, and he went back to his church. And he was apprehensive because he didn't know what might have happened to this church. He had been gone for 18 years with no news from the church. Nothing had gotten back to him. When he left, there had been 100 people huddled underground worshiping. And he wondered, would there be anybody left when he got there? But when he got there, he was met by a crowd of people, 5,000 people. 5,000 people. And he was stunned, and he asked them, he said, what happened? How could this be possible? And they said, well, we don't know, really, but six years ago, the Holy Spirit began to be poured out on the church, and the church began to grow, and now this is where we are today. There's a difference between solitude and isolation, and if you are alone, spend time with God. Make it a moment of worship with Him. The second lesson is you may not get new circumstances, but you can get a new mindset, a new mindset. You know, Paul is eventually going to be released from this prison, but he didn't know it at the time. He didn't know what might happen. He could have been sentenced to death in any number of horrible ways. He could have spent the rest of his life in jail. He didn't know what the future held, but he knew who held the future. He was lonely, but he wasn't alone. And he chose to live and have the mindset that God was in control and that sharing Christ was the most important thing he could do. He could not control his circumstances, but he controlled the way that he thought about his circumstances. And so he saw this as an opportunity. Your circumstances may be God-ordained right where you are right now, and you can't change them, but you can share Jesus where you are. Here's the third lesson. You need a purpose bigger than you and bigger than your pain and bigger than your problem. We all need a purpose in life. We all need to find a purpose and a meaning for whatever we're going through. You know, this time of being isolated from people and for some people staying at home will be worse for many people than if they had gotten out and actually gotten the virus. Because there will be a time of loneliness. For some, it's isolation. For a lot of people, there's some bad habits that they've started. Alcohol, addiction, neglecting their spiritual lives. If this is the time of isolation for you, Satan will use this time to distract you and get you out of the habit of worship. And I know that there are people, and maybe not even listening right now, but who are not listening right now because they've gotten out of the habit. Because there are a ton of other things on a beautiful Sunday morning that you could do instead of worshiping. So if you are at home, I would encourage you, commit yourself to worship. If you're not coming out to worship yet, pray about that when God might encourage you to, get, to be out. Someone said the danger of missing church is that soon you won't miss it. And I really believe that is true. We drift away from our faith. Even if you don't blame God for this sickness, it's easy to drift away, and a lot of people have. See, whatever is going on with you, you need to redefine your purpose. And your purpose should be to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ.
That's more important than your pain. It's more important than your problems. It's more important than your loneliness. You can focus on those things or you can focus on Christ. You decide. But whenever you focus on Christ, you begin to pray for others. You share your faith. You lead other people to Christ. You encourage and build up those that you love. You embolden other people as well to share Christ. You do that. So find some way to reach out beyond yourself, even if you're stuck at home. Find a way to share Christ, to encourage other believers, to pray for them, to advance the gospel, and that will be your source of joy. That's where our joy comes from. You know, we think we would be joyful if all of our problems were gone, but we're not. And we wouldn't be if we had a problem-free life. Because joy doesn't come from outward sources. Joy comes from within. It comes from Jesus. People and things and circumstances, they don't bring us joy. If you don't think that's true, just think about the last time you really got something you wanted, you thought would make you happy, and then you weren't really happy with it. It was always the next thing. That's because things never satisfy, but Jesus does. We need to seek and ask for the joy of the Lord in spite of what we're dealing with in life, no matter how bad it can be. You know, I hope that's encouraging to you today. It certainly is to me. And, and, uh, and wherever you are, your place in life, I pray that God would give you encouragement and that you would find joy in Him today. And if you don't have a relationship with Him, I would love to have that conversation to talk about your next step on your journey with Christ. So please get in touch with me and then help you make that, that decision for Jesus.